So, last week, if you listened, uh, we talked about Morag and Pete, uh, some members of our church, and how Pete had uh, called Morag to meet him at a church up in the hills on a supermoon uh, evening. And then when she turned around, he was on his knees and he proposed to her. Now, part of that proposing, when he said he wanted to marry her, he gave her a ring. That ring became, that engagement ring, became Morag's confidence that Pete was going to carry through and actually marry her in May. And, and so, as you can imagine, as she went home, because she came in a separate car, she would have driven home by herself, she would have gone home with that, with that assurance, that tingly feeling, that excitement, by looking at her engagement ring, that Pete was going to marry her. Well, I tell you that because as we conclude chapter 3 of Ruth, this today, it, it kind of paves the way because we're going to see Boaz do something similar for Ruth. He's not going to give her an engagement, diamond engagement ring, although this is an engagement of sorts, but he's going to give us something, a pledge, a token, that will give Ruth a similar assurance that Boaz will keep his word to marry her. And so, today, we're looking at verses 14 to 18, and we'll conclude the chapter. Last week, if I just give you a brief reflection on that, we got as far as Ruth went up to the threshing floor, waited for Boaz to sleep, went over to him, uncovered his feet, lay down, and then popped the question, as it were, when she said, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. And we said that that was effectively a proposal. She was asking Boaz to take her under his care, under his wing, into his home, to, to care for her. And so Boaz responds beautifully, and we said it's such, a beautiful, such beautiful words that he says to her, I will do all you ask. So without hesitation, Boaz welcomes uh, Ruth's proposal accepts it, affirms it, I will do all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. And we said that's a beautiful thing to say to her. It's putting her on par with the woman, of that perfect woman, the perfect wife of Proverbs 31. And Boaz is saying that he sees in Ruth those qualities that to him she is Perfect, the perfect example of a godly, beautiful, loving, caring, goodwill, kind natured lady, woman, wife. And so today, as we consider the pledge, we have just the one heading the pledge and the token. The pledge and the token. Verses 14 to 18. So, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could, could be recognised. So at Boaz's request, Ruth stays back on the threshing floor, even though this could have obviously exposed them to some form of ridicule or shame. Boaz asks her to do so, obviously for her safety. If she were to return home at this hour of the night, it could be the very early hours of night, one, two in the morning, uh, there could still be some men, possibly drunk. She could be in danger from being ambushed. 
she could be in danger from wild beasts. I remember seeing a wild beast only yesterday. Ferocious looking thing, felt in immediate danger. Well, I would have done uh, were enough for uh, the cage or, or, the, or the wire, electrical wire fence around the beast, protecting uh, sightseers, viewers such as myself. But should Ruth encounter a wild beast, it would be the end of it. Well, thank you. And so Look, Boaz wasn't going to send his fiancée home in the dark. And so he keeps her with her, at least for a short while. But we're told, okay, she doesn't want anybody to know, don't let, any, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. But verse 14, she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised. So sometime before daylight breaks, she gets up, and she gets ready to leave, but Boaz doesn't just let her leave. Watch this, verse 15. He said, bring me the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured, it, poured into his six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. So here's what's going on. He, he, he brings it forward. He takes a part of her garment. They weren't wearing, you know, like a shirt. Uh, do you love my new fancy shirt? It was a birthday present from Sangbian. Thank you, Sangbian. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, just the kind of stuff I'd buy. Uh, and, and so, look, it, it wasn't anything like this. It was a loose garment okay, of some nature that you would put around you. And so, and so he grabs this garment, okay, and they often use it for carrying things. I used to see this uh, when I was uh, in, my, in the country of my birth as a little child. And, and he pours into it, we're told, look how much does he pour into it? Six measures of barley. That's about just a little over my weight. How happy do you think I am? Okay, about 50k roughly. Okay, something like that. Uh, this is about 40k, right? He pours into it 40 kilograms of grain. I mean, that's a lot of grain. You try carrying me, Lorraine. You know, I'm much heavy. You know, it's much harder than you would imagine. He pours into it 40 kilograms of grain, and we should imagine that was common in this culture. How did people use? How would people carry stuff in that culture? You sometimes see it on TV. Yeah, seriously. Talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger neck. I mean, these ladies must have been built like him. So he would, before, you wouldn't carry that, you know, you try to carry 40K in your arm like that, right? So he would most probably lift it up onto her head for her, okay? Sounds like torture, doesn't it? And so that she would carry this arm. And this, it's amazing, these ladies in the East, how they could balance this thing. Really, how they could just wobble her head perfectly. So he would have lifted it up onto her head, no doubt, so she could carry it home. She took this home with her. Look, bring me a shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into his six measures of barley and put it on her. So, and here's the thing. We already said he was giving her ample amounts of grain to survive. And we said she probably was stockpiling grain at home. So why would he send her home with more grain? Especially when she needs to get home quickly. Okay? And especially this amount of grain. What's he saying? Can you see what he's saying? There's, a, there's imagery here, isn't it? He's saying, this is a token of how things are going to be for you, Ruth. Okay? From this juncture on Ruth, you will never again be without. And the reason, Ruth, you'll never be without again is because I've just given you word, Ruth, that from this juncture... You're going to be my 
wife. I'm going to take you into my home. I'm going to care for you. See this grain? This is what it'll be like. Look, if you were sent away with a, with a bag of grain, you'd hardly want to marry the fellow, would you? Okay. But in that culture, grain was your lifeline. Seriously. And so this is important. He's sending away, and if you like, this is his pledge. This is his promise. This is the ring. This is the token that will show her that this is going to, the Boaz rather, is going to follow through on his word. And this is exactly how Naomi reads it. Listen to this. This is what Naomi says in response. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything that Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Don't go back without your mother-in-law knowing that my word can be counted on, that I'm going to follow through and actually marry you. And then Naomi says, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Naomi understood that this token, this gesture, this pledge was his bond, okay, that he was going to marry her. Look, he won't rest, she knows it, until the matter is settled immediately. This is going to happen quickly. And this is, you know, this wedding is going to be very close to the engagement. So Boaz then gives Ruth his word to marry her, gives her this pledge, this token, sends her home with it, that she can be certain that he is indeed going to take her into his home to be his wife. The pledge and the token. I remember when we bought a house back in the UK, up in North Wales, it's our last home, the one we had just before we came here. There's a picture of it. If you're wondering why the skies look grey, okay, because that was pretty normal, especially where we lived up on top of a hill. It rained a lot. And so just when we were buying this house, it took a long time. It took four months. Normally it takes about two. It took four months, all the delays of various searches and things you have to do. And so during that process, there were many times when we thought that it was going to fall through. Eventually, four months in, I think January 2016, we, we ex- contracts exchange. Is that what takes place here? That makes the thing legal. But even then, I wasn't confident that it was going to be our house. You can pull out even at that stage. But it wasn't until I went to the estate agent, real estate, and they handed me the key. And as I was driving to the house with the key in my hand, well, I, was, I had a steering wheel in my hand, okay? <laughs> Don't tell the cops, okay? <laughs> right. When I had the, uh, the keys, it was then that I knew that this is our house. Really, it was it's holding those keys that gave me that confidence that this is our house now. Okay? It needed a lot of work doing too, but nevertheless, it was our house. And I think that that's what's going on. It's an illustration of what Ruth is doing. When she's walking home, when this measure of weight is on her head, she has this glow. You can imagine there was a glow. You can imagine there was a smile because she was carrying something that gave her the confidence that Boaz loved her and he's going to marry her. He's going to provide and care for her. And so as she walked away, you can imagine some of her thoughts. What was, her, what was Ruth's lot? What was her life? She was bereaved of her husband. She lost her family. She was living as a stranger. She was no doubt living in digs that weren't great. She was 
you know, living hand to mouth. She probably had very few sets of clothing. Her future was uncertain. Her mother-in-law was a companion, but her mother-in-law wasn't going to live forever. Okay, she was going to be alone. Who would want to marry a foreigner, a, a widow? Okay, who's going to care for her? When Naomi's gone, what's going to happen? What if Boaz changed his mind and stopped caring for her? She doesn't have any kids. A big thing in that environment. Can you, can you see her lot? Do you ever feel really down that things aren't great for you? Look at Ruth. This was her life. Nothing looked great for her. But the early hours of that morning, that dark morning with this weight on her head, was a weight of hope. Can you see that? This spoke about hope. That she, that she was returning home. Now, there was a chance that she may have children. She could never think about that before. There was real hope that she may bear children because she's now going to have a husband. There was confidence that there was going to be a meal on the table every night without having to worry about the next harvest coming in. There was certainty now that there was going to be companionship in her life. That there was going to be someone there beyond Naomi. Someone to care for her, love her, protect her. Can you see what this situation has done for Ruth? It's brought hope into her life. Real, solid, weighty, 40 kilograms of hope. I want you to hold that intention now. I'm going to draw on it at the end. That this has brought hope into her life. The pledge and the token. So what do we take away? What do you and I take away from this episode from 3,000 years ago to a young lady? And how does it relate to me? It's great for Ruth. What's God saying to me through this episode? Well, let me show you this, friends. Remember we said that you and I are a picture of Jesus' bride, his church. He is the groom Jesus, our Lord. And so, if we put this in parallel, this is, we said last week that Ruth asking Boaz to marry him was equivalent to our coming to faith. It's when we come to Jesus, when we confess our sins, when we invite him into our hearts, when we tell him that we need him, when we acknowledge that we can't live this life, walk this walk alone. Do you know the, the biggest, you know, there's a pandemic going around in our world. But it's the biggest, the big, there's a bigger one yet. The biggest pandemic to hit the human race is the pandemic of thinking that we can do life autonomously. Autonomy is the biggest pandemic this world has ever encountered. The reason this place isn't full, the reason there are thousands of people walking around not worshipping God somewhere this morning is because almost everyone believes they can do it themselves. It's why church is on full. Because who needs God? We can do it ourselves. And so the first step to conversion is acknowledging I can't do it alone. I need something outside of myself. I do need a God. I do need God to be real. I, I do need to find him. I do need to find the, the, the real God. The, the one true God. And so that first step that Ruth, the step that Ruth made 
is a picture of our salvation. So if that's a picture of our salvation, and we said that Jesus welcomes us, what is the picture of the pledge? What is the picture of the pledge? Here, when we come to Jesus, here's what he says to us. If you have any doubt about what Jesus will do to you, coming to him, John 6, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John 5, okay, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be condemned. And the whole thing ends here. Revelation 19, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Your coming to Jesus is heading towards a wedding. Not a wedding in the way we know it, but a wedding where we'll be united finally to Jesus. Here's Jesus' words to you. It's in John 6. The moment that you came to Jesus, the moment that you believed, the moment that you put your faith in him, was a moment in John 6. Is he still there? It is. John 5, rather. It was a moment when you crossed over from death to life. It was a crossing, which means that your life now is in a different place than it was before your faith. And whatever your life is, Jesus says, it can never be removed from that place. A Christian isn't someone who crosses between death and life every time you fall. I wonder if you know that. A Christian isn't somebody who's crisscrossing life and death 7, 10, 20, 30 times in the week. How many times have you sinned this week? Do you know how many times? Thank you, Pauline. She just mined lots. And so does that mean that Pauline has crisscrossed death to life, death to life, lots and lots of times this week? No. And Christian, I wonder if you know that. Whatever kind of week you've had and whatever kind of week you will have, you are not crisscrossing death to life, death to life. That crisscrossing occurred once in your existence. You are now in the place when you enjoy Jesus' favour, regardless of what your walk is like. That doesn't justify not walking well, but it at least gives you this assurance you are not crisscrossing death to life. You have once for all and once and for all crossed over to Jesus' favour, Jesus' presence, and whatever kind of week you've had, You're in his presence. Okay, we may need to be confessing sins. We may need to be saying sorry. We may may need to be asking for more grace for this week. But you have not crossed over to where you once were. You can never cross over again. There is no way out of Jesus' hand for you. Let me tell you that, friends. What did Jesus say in John 10? It's not on the screen, Nicky. Ignore this one. This is a freebie. Okay? Okay? I have got you in the palm of my hands and... No one can. It talks about the Father, actually. No one can snatch you out of his hands. Take that with you, Christian. No one can. And don't be so stupid. I've heard this stupid saying once. Oh, no one can, but you can. How stupid is that? Seriously, how stupid is that? No one else can, but you can. No, you can't. You are not in control of your destiny as much as you may naively think you are. Remember we said before, it wasn't your decision that put you into Jesus' presence, it was his. And no one, not even yourself, can take yourself out of his presence. So you're there, his word is his bond, that you're his. And the pledge then, I'm, I'm going to get to the pledge, here's the pledge. 
or the token. What did Jesus give you or do for you to assure you or guarantee you that, you, that he is indeed going to marry you. Because here's the thing about our union with Jesus. We're not quite married to him yet. That's heaven. What pledge, what token, what 40 kgs of grain did Jesus plonk on your head, as it were, to give you insurance that he's going to marry you, he's going to take you to heaven, that this is a one-way thing that you have? What did he give you? Is there another guess? This is complex. It's not easy. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, it's not the obvious thing. So throw out a lot of things and, and we'll ignore the ones that are wrong and we'll home in on the one that's right. There's only one answer or one definitive answer. Someone? Yes, Jerry. Yes, Jerry. Okay, and the clue is the picture in the background. But what, yes, Jerry. What Jesus gave you as a pledge assuring and guaranteeing that he's going to come back for you and take you to heaven and marry you, as it were, using figurative language, is the text. Thank you. Look, he anointed us and set his seal of ownership. Yeah, his love, certainly. And, And put his spirit in our hearts as, read the words, would you read these words with me? As a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You have God's spirit in you, Christian, because Jesus has put him there as a keepsake to guarantee you he's coming back for you. Every time you think you're outside of of God, his spirit is what assures you. Look, there's another verse, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, having believed when you believed. When you were on the threshing floor, as it were, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, God's possession to, to the praise of his glory. Sorry, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You have the Spirit of Jesus. He lives in you. In fact, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit in you. Remember that. When you say Jesus is Lord, and by that we mean when you mean it heart with all your heart and soul, it's because His Spirit is living in you. And His Spirit in you, Christian, is the pledge, is the assurance that John 14, 3, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be, you also may be where I am. You have His Spirit. He's the assurance that you belong to Jesus. And you know you have His Spirit because He indwells you. He gives you a sense of Jesus' presence. In Romans 8, we're told that it's the Spirit within us that cries out, Abba, Father. You know, when you feel and when you can cry out and when you can call and when you can talk to God like he's your father that's because his spirit is within you when you can say Jesus is Lord and mean them it's because his spirit is in you when when you can tell someone about Jesus with great enthusiasm it's because his spirit is within you when you can maybe speak a, a language you've never learned it's because his spirit is within you when you can 
pray for somebody and see God's power at work, that's because His Spirit is within you. When you can speak and the words are beyond what you can speak yourself or contain a power that you do not possess, that's because His Spirit is within you. It's His Spirit doing His work. And ultimately and finally, the thing that His Spirit does for you, friends, it assures you that He's coming back. That He's going to take you to heaven. The pledge and the token. And it's His Spirit in your heart that gives you real and genuine Hope of heaven, yes, absolutely yes. But much, much more than that. It gives you hope that the minute you begin walking away from making your profession of faith in Jesus, your life would never be the same again. It gives you the hope that from that juncture, you're walking with one who holds the key to your future who holds the power to your predicament to make something good of it, to bring something positive out of whatever you face. The minute you place your your faith in Jesus, you walked away with hope. Remember Ruth walking away? You walked away with hope. And let me tell you about the power of hope. You might not think much of hope. Hope is the most powerful and gracious gift that Jesus gives to us. And to steal hope is a terrible thing. Let me show you something of the power of hope on rats. Okay, I'm not a scientist, but I've read about this. Look, there's a rat. That is a rat, isn't it? I'll Google rat, and that came up. Okay, yeah, okay. Yes, that is a rat, isn't it? Let me tell you about the power of rats. This is mean, but this is what happens in labs. Okay, they took two sets of rats. They left them in a container of water, both sets, okay? A container that they couldn't climb out of. So this is only, this, you know where this is going. This is why I say it's not very nice. In, in the one water tub, they left the rats and didn't return to them at all. Within an hour, they drowned. Okay, within an hour, because they couldn't get out. They tried and they gave up, they drowned, okay? In the second container periodically they'd go back to the container and lift out the rats, give them a moment, and put them back in. Okay. And they kept doing this. 24 hours later, those rats were still alive. What was the difference? What was the difference between those two scenarios? In the one, there was hope. Can you see that? Those poor little rats kept scurrying to get out because they knew that any moment, at any moment, a power outside of themselves may lift them out of their predicament, change their predicament. And so it was worth keep trying to swim. It was worth doing it. And Christian, here's the message for you. That when you came to Jesus Christ, you entered hope. Okay? That there was a power outside of your life that every now and then in your predicament would come and lift you out. Isn't that what you found in your life? It's what you possess. And so here's God's word to you that whatever is going on in your life, don't you give up. 
Don't take your confidence out of Jesus. Don't give up on your life. Don't give up on that circumstance. Don't lose that hope. However impossible your scenario, however desperate it is, whatever it's been like, however many years your situation has been blacker than black, however long it's gone on, however deep, however desperate, however impossible, however long it may take, don't give up on hope in Jesus for your life. Who knows that this week God may begin to change things in your life. If not this week, maybe next month, maybe next year, maybe the one after that, maybe beyond that. He holds the power to put his hands into your tub and however desperate now, however miserable, to lift you out and put you into a new place. You ever read the Psalms? You read them every day, okay? If you, you want a command from your pastor, okay, it's the only one I'll ever give you. Read the Psalms every day. Read the Psalms every day. Let me take my Bible. It's, this is a freebie, Nikki. Psalm 40. Have I got time for this? Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Psalm 40, oh, I, should have, I knew I should have bought my glasses. I've got some new glasses and it helps if you bring them, okay? Here we go, look at this. Okay, I waited, and this is a word for you, okay? I waited patiently for the Lord. Our biggest trouble when we're in predicament is that we lack the patience to wait. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Christian, wait! Wait! In hope! His hand will come. He promises you, His hand will come will reach down, will do something for you, whether the grace to transform you or the grace for your situation to transform from what it is now. Wait on the Lord. And when he finally does the miracle in your life, praise him. Praise him. Praise him. And tell him. I I do it all the time. Tell him, God, when you do this miracle in my life, I will praise you and praise you and declare your wonder. So Christian, hey, go away with this today. You have his spirit in your life, in your heart. He assures you of heaven. Yes! But he assures you of much, much, much more. Hey, however sad you may feel today, however much you've given up on ever being happy, of ever being content, of ever feeling that your life is of some value or that you are of some value to somebody. Jesus can change your predicament with one miracle. How 
what's the chasm between your present situation and your life completely turning around with something real positive? One miracle. You're one miracle away from everything being different. Hope in the Lord. I think I've got a, one psalm there, having a Psalm 43. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. The pledge and the token. Amen.